welcome back to Behind Startup Lines, the show that delves into the commercial side of successful startups. Today, my guest is Ed McNair, the driving force behind Sensenet, a transformative cybersecurity platform initially designed to solve the underserved need of small and medium-sized businesses. Ed's fascinating path takes us from his humble beginnings as a door-to-door salesman right up to mastering sales and business development at Canon and a few other major titans. After cutting his teeth in the corporate world, Ed took the plunge into entrepreneurship, starting with a seven-person outfit that ultimately led to a successful exit through a merger. Now at the helm of Sensenet, Ed and his team are applying corporate know-how to grow the business. We'll unpack the crucial role of channel sales, the essentials of building commercially sound relationships, and the must-haves of a solid go-to-market plan. We'll even discuss how my pod model inspired Ed to think differently about assembling his go-to-market team. If you're after actionable tips on commercial strategy, you've come to the right place. Let's get stuck into it. So Ed, welcome to Behind Startup Lines. It's great to see you again. It's been a while since we last spoke. Uh, How are things going at Sensenet? Oh, hi, Phil. It's, uh, It's good to see you again. Um, things have been going really well, actually. It's, it's almost embarrassing to say that um, year to date, we're 50% up year on year. So I'm really, really happy about that. Um, yeah, especially given you know, the amount of uncertainty there is in the world. But it seems like cyber is definitely bouncing back. Great. Tell us a bit about Sensonet and then we'll get into your journey because it's a fascinating one that, uh, by my count, has now covered everything from a management buyout to an acquisition to starting several businesses uh, and I'm sure a lot of the founders listening to this today are going to find your story really inspiring but let's start with Sensenet tell us a bit about the business sure at Sensenet we've developed a uh, cybersecurity platform which really is targeted to solve the cybersecurity needs of the small to medium sized enterprise so today that platform encompasses all of the key attack vectors that an organization is potentially vulnerable through. So it's a secure email gateway, secure web gateway, cloud application security or CASB, and identity as a service. And we also have a a fifth module, which is uh, security awareness training, because uh, I think as we all know, um, all our colleagues and uh, uh, users need to be more aware of the cybersecurity threat. And, you know, they shouldn't do silly things like click on links from people they don't know. So that's what we do. What makes us unique is the fact we underpin this, what we call autonomous security engine, which is basically an AI-driven, I suppose, remediation uh, element, which really connects all the elements in the platform and enables us and our customers to react to threats automatically, so without user intervention. So that's what we do. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for explaining that to us. Now, you and I share a similar background in that that we both served in the armed forces and we met through a program, uh, an accelerated program several years ago, and I think immediately uh, hit it off. What I'm interested in is whether or not that experience in the armed forces prepared you for being an entrepreneur. Um, So let's start there and then let's get into the journey of how you got to, to today. Well, I definitely don't think you need to have been in the services to be an entrepreneur, but it helps. And uh, I think you know, some of the some of the uh, 
experiences I had in the armed services or the armed forces definitely helped on my journey because the military teaches you about resilience, you know, determination, teamwork, which is absolutely critical, leadership, yeah. and, and and basically having to get on with all sorts of different people, the people you may not normally uh, yeah. mix with in your normal day-to-day -day life. So all of those things sort of conspire and help, I think, um, on that entrepreneurial journey. Really helps you, yes. And you were a Royal Engineer, so you're a builder, and then you turn from building, I don't know whether it was bridges or uh, <laughs> other constructions to building businesses. What was the early journey like? So what, just talk us through where you started once you, you started on this building business journey. Sure. Well, you know, I, I think a lot of people think of Royal Engineers as builders, but we also blow things up as well. So <laughs> we're pretty good yeah. at, at demolition <laughs> as well as building. Yeah, which is always my... my, my yeah, my, my most enjoyable part was blowing yeah. things up, but yeah. then I'm a Marine, so... Yeah. Well, that's true, that's true, but uh, very enjoyable. <laughs> when I left the Army, I got into sales, and uh, my first job was selling double glazing. And uh, so it was literally door-to-door, -door commission only, knocking on doors. And I think, I think this sort of... Um, the, <laughs> the army experience definitely helped with that because you, know, you had to be really, really resilient. You had, a, you know, you had yeah. 90, 99 people telling you to get lost or, or, or even worse before somebody would say, yes, yeah. um, I'll, I'll take, a, take a meeting. So that was a fascinating journey for me. And I, I did that for probably three years, you know, selling commission only door to door. And eventually I got fed up with working evenings and weekends. And I thought, let me see if I can secure a, a job where I don't need to do that. Like I can work normal business hours. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to get a job at Canon, the office equipment company, as a sales guy. And uh, this was in the mid 80s. And it was a wonderful time to be selling office equipment because yeah, it was booming, ab absolutely yeah. booming. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to do very well as a sales guy and then got a sales management position and uh, sort of built my career that way. And from Canon, I ended up joining um, Xerox. Um, great company. Uh, Canon was a great company as well. But uh, Xerox was fantastic from a training perspective. They really invested very heavily in training their people. So there was a lot of leadership training plus sales training as well. So uh, really good time at Xerox. And uh, from Xerox, I went to IBM which was a whole different ballgame. IBM was, right. it, it was, it was a very, very interesting company at the time I joined because Lou Gerstner hadn't, had long, hadn't long been in the business and uh, he was implementing a massive raft of change. And one of, that, um, one of those change elements was really moving everything to channel. So from my perspective, yeah, I, find it, I find it absolutely fascinating. I worked with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with and it was a real privilege to yeah. work for IBM. And from there, from IBM, I got into a startup world and joined a company called Message Labs, uh, which was the first real startup I joined. And that was the baptism of fire. Uh, I think I was employee number four. I bet it was. Yeah. <laughs> I, was I was employee number four and, there. And how, how do you make that transition? Well, how do you make a transition from working for the three of the biggest players in the market into startups? I think it was... 
I, I wanted a new challenge. You know, in reality, I, I think I was a little bit bored and jaded by working for very large American software companies. And the idea to the idea of doing something completely new and creating something was really appealing. And it was it was a really, really interesting challenge. And yeah, I look back on that and it was a pivotal moment for me. So uh, I think I, I'm very... And what what stage in life were you at then, Ed? I mean, how old were you? Do you have family? What was that I, transition like? Yeah, I think I was about 40 at the time. Um, uh, I was married, no children, but... Um, yeah, it was. I think working in a startup, you kind of realise it. It's you're always on. Um, you don't just yeah. you don't, don't just shut your computer at five thirty and and zip off home. And it was it was a real challenge building something, hiring a lot of people, making a lot of mistakes when you're doing that as well, um, and yes. not ha- not having you know, the support structure you'd necessarily have in a large corporate so so for me it was a fascinating journey i really enjoyed that and from message labs i joined a small new zealand-based startup called marshall and uh, my job was really running europe for marshall and in pretty short order um, we were acquired by netiq um which is also an interesting journey um I, i enjoyed the time at netiq but it became obvious quite quickly to me that yeah, the people at NetIQ didn't understand what they'd actually bought. So we were right. that red-headed stepchild sitting in the corner and uh, not, get, not <laughs> okay. getting a lot of love. So eventually that led me to leave a management buyout where we bought Marshall out of NetIQ and started building a business. And that was tremendously exciting. So. Yeah, I think I had uh, a very, very exciting and challenging five years building a global organization, uh, which we did successfully and ultimately sold that business to Trustwave. And uh, after that, I was kind of twiddling my thumbs and I kind of realized that I had this crazy idea that the world was going to need to be able to control cloud applications in the same way as it did on-premise applications. So I founded a company called SAS ID, which was basically the very first cloud access security broking technology. And that went extremely quickly. So it took us about two years to build the software and uh, through several iterations and, and checking with CIOs and CISOs I knew saying, you know, does this solve a problem you have? And yeah. uh, yeah. Eventually got it into shape. We launched it at the RSA conference in San Francisco in 2013. And within six weeks, we had four offices in the business. And ultimately, we sold it to a US company called Intermedia. You'll find the theme here. While I was at Intermedia, and Intermedia, very focused on unified communications, uh, at the time hosted Exchange and a whole other swathe of offerings for uh, the SMB. I kind of realized that the SMB was really underserved for security. You know, small to medium-sized enterprises have the same security challenges as large enterprises, but they don't have the resources or the skills uh, to actually protect themselves. So that's really got, what got me thinking about creating a security platform that would basically enable any type of organization to 
have the best level of security. So it was after that we started on the journey of building out SensorNet. Now, as a sales person originated from that sales background, I just want to unpack one of the things you said there about talking to CISOs early on in the, the software development. So you went to market and what researched is how big a problem was this, whether or not that if we built something to solve it, it was really going to help. Could you just talk us through about that discovery piece you did around you know, the problem you were looking to solve? Because that sounds like it was an important part of your journey. It was a pivotal part of the journey because you know, there's no point developing something that there isn't a market for or something that doesn't actually solve a real business problem. So what led to the genesis of SenseNet was actually I was having a beer with uh, Dr. Steve Garnett, who uh, at the time was chairman of Salesforce.com in Emir. And Steve has been a longtime friend of mine and an incredibly bright man and very, very supportive. And Steve and I were having a beer and he was saying that one of the challenges with um, Salesforce at the time, since it's been solved, was that it didn't have very granular permissions. So if you had access to um, yeah, all, all of the customer data, you had access to it and basically you could export it or do anything with that data. And they were getting questions from some of their banking customers or banking prospects as to you know, how they could secure permissions within that um, within the software stack. So that kind of led me to think there's got to be a way to actually solve that issue. And if Salesforce customers are having that issue, surely other uh, SaaS uh, software users were having the same issue as well. So that's when I, I went out and started talking to CIOs and CISOs of, of organizations I knew. Obviously, it's easier to go and talk to people you know. And started getting some feedback on, you know, insecurity or is the lack of uh, role-based access control holding you back from adopting some SaaS applications? And resoundingly, people were saying yes. And at the time, you, know, you, you were seeing this sort of massive um, ramp up in SaaS, SaaS software, and people were you know, making the leap into uh, from on-premise software into you know, software as a service. And there were a lot of questions around security, and typically, and security is pretty low down on the. Uh, development stack for uh, SaaS. You know, people think about the functionality of the application, what it's going to deliver, the usability, UI, and things mm -hmm. like that. And security is quite often an afterthought. So it, it really showed me that there was a gap in the market and nobody was actually looking to address that. So that's uh, that really was what led me to actually build out SaaS ID. And how much validation did you need at that time? I mean, was this like 10, 20 conversations or was it two or three with the keep the right people that thought, yes, it, you know, this is a problem worth solving? It was probably 10 or 20 uh, conversations. And it was really sort right. of asking whether people would actually pay for it. And uh, right. that was, a, you know, I, I, I got a resounding yes from that. So that led me to believe that there was a market. 
it was really quite interesting because very early on when we built the first prototype, um, I talked to some of my contacts at Gartner, some of the Gartner analysts, and got them to have a look. And they, they were saying, don't understand it, there's no need for it, etc., etc. Yeah. And you know, you're not really solving a real problem. And then, of course, you fast forward three or four years, and Gartner are telling me this is the most important security technology ever. <laughs> so, yes. so, so yeah. you, you, you can't what's put the trust ca- in What's analysts. the takeaway from that? Yeah, yeah, I was you, thinking that like analysts are useful for bouncing ideas off and understanding existing markets, but what's the risk of listening it, to them? Exactly. I mean, analysts have a rear view mirror. They don't look forward often enough, I will say. Right, right. Okay. Now, did you, when you started to develop the product uh, and the technology, did you build that or did you have someone to help you with, with the tech side of thing? How did you go about actually putting this together? Well, we hired a very talented developer and uh, built a team around him. And, but it was, it was critical getting somebody very, very smart. You know, I, I was very lucky in that uh, my co-founder, Richard Walters, uh, is, uh, is a superb technologist and has got great technology vision. And you know, between the two of us, we scoped out what we wanted to do. And we hired a super bright um, development lead, Simon Knott, who actually started you know, taking our rough thoughts and shaping them into a product. Okay, so you had a technical co-founder. Where did you find Richard? Um, I, Richard and I have crossed paths several times over our, over my career, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm lucky in that we have a we had a really good meeting of minds, and we understood each other very yes. very well, and we're very complementary. So it was previous work together where you, you, you built that relationship and then you decided to go on the journey. It's one of the challenges that, that I've found in trying to build my product, my first product, is finding that technical uh, co-founder or that person with the same sort of technical vision. Do you have any advice about where you know, maybe non-technical founders might find their technical match to help them with this? Yeah, it's a really difficult one. And... Uh... I think all you can do is talk to a lot of people, uh, use your network, try and find contacts. And, I mean, it's it's like a marriage in a lot of ways. You've got yes. to find somebody who yes. shares the same, same vision or you can share the same vision with and has the same sort of compass, both morally and, and uh, uh, commercially, I think. Yeah, and you find that person, and then you hired in someone to actually put hands on keyboard, as it were, yeah. to build the software, but with the architecture and, and the vision clearly defined by you and Richard. That's what got you to first. What, what did first product look like? Well, the first product is, it was really quite interesting because you have to learn to be able to pivot very, very quickly. Our first customer was actually Groupon, and uh, as we were actually installing it, we suddenly realized there was a glaring hole, which was that uh, effectively we had to be able to control user identities. So we were missing a single sign-on element. Now Simon and the team uh, basically coded for, I think it was about 72 hours straight, just building a single sign-on component. I mean, they were just phenomenal. And 
And within three days, we had a we had a single sign-on component which controlled user identities, and that enabled us to deploy successfully. So, so uh, <laughs> this, you know, this is life in the trenches. You've got to adapt, improvise, and overcome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, words that, that ring true, I think, with, with all of us with, with a similar background. Um, did you have to build that single sign-on? I mean, I'm interested in the point at which you realized that was needed. Was that needed to close the deal? Or was that once you closed the deal, you realized you had to play catch-up to give them what they needed? It was once we'd closed the deal, we realized we had to play catch-up. And uh, it, it was just a... That, that's amazing. It, it was, it was a quite bizarre... You know, too often you're focused on the functionality, and uh, it uh, it was as I said. Really, you know, people think about security as a sort of uh, afterthought, but this was a this was a key key element that we needed to deliver. So, how did you get in the door of Groupon, which I imagine at the time was was a big player, um, moving quickly, uh, real success story. How do you even get? to the table with them uh, never mind figuring out what you need to build for them once you close the deal it was really knocking on a lot of doors um we'd hired a sales guy who was very very active and basically knocked on a heck of a lot of doors and i think if i look at that whole door knocking exercise you know because of the background i had in in selling double glazing and and uh door-to-door sales you, know, you realize that nothing sort of really trumps activity in terms of lead generation. You've got to get in front of people. And uh, you know, whether yes. your ratio is you know, one meeting in 100 calls or it's better than that, nothing really trumps talking to people. And did you have a plan in the early days, Ed? Did you set back and go, okay, we know the sector we want to go and do business with, we know the ideal customer we'd like to work with. Did you have all that figured out before you started knocking on doors? Yeah, we, we did. Um, yeah, we had a very clear understanding of, of, the, of the profile of customers that uh, we needed. They had to be using SaaS applications. There were probably three applications that we targeted, Salesforce being one of them. Right. And uh, it was quite easy to actually go and look at find your customer demographic right so you narrowed it down you knew what segment you wanted you know you looked at technologies which was an indicator of whether they were going to be able to to use what you were building um how did you then start to uh, approach them was it was it email was it telephone calls what was working back in the day that got those initial discussions it, it was telephone calls so uh, right, was, old school. yeah it was that old school grunt work and uh, yeah, hitting the phones, following up by email, uh, booking meetings. And of course, I think we were very lucky then because the majority of our meetings were face-to-face. Now, it, it, now the world has changed substantially. Yeah, well, let's talk about how that uh, how business has changed over the years and, and uh, how you get in touch with customers today because it's much harder in some respects that they're not responsive to phone calls or email in quite the way they, they were. But let's talk about how it scaled. So you had a, you had a plan, and, and let's refer to this, I guess, as some form of go-to-market plan. Um, you, you, you were able to zero in on your customer segment. Um, how did it start to build momentum? When did you realize that what you had here was something that the world was really quite keen on and, and were willing to pay for? 
I think it was with our first customer. Um, you know, as soon as we, we closed our first deal, we realized that you know, we had something that people would pay for. We solved a real uh, business problem for organizations. And, and then it was a matter of scaling. Now, in all honesty, we didn't get the chance to scale massively because um, we were acquired way before we achieved critical mass. And I think we probably right. had probably had a dozen customers by the time we, we were acquired. Right. So enough evidence that you had a real solution to a real problem. Uh, and then someone saw the potential and snapped the company up. Exactly. Um, how, how was the journey with, with, the, with the next business then? Was it, did it follow a similar path or has it been different? Well, I, you know, I think with SenseNet, we were lucky in that we had a head start. Uh, Tim Lloyd had built a really exciting technology around secure web gateways and architecture unlike anything I'd seen before. And uh, Tim had customers, uh, albeit a lot of customers in the education sector. So we, so we weren't starting from absolutely cold. What we were doing, though, was looking to scale a go-to-market and uh, scaling right. that go-to-market go meant we were coming outside of the education sector. Um, we were working with right. uh, different types of uh, channel partners and uh, yeah, addressing different markets as well and different geographies. So... Uh, you know, it was quite different in that way. Did you, at the time of, of putting that go-to-market plan together, did you make conscious decisions then to do things differently? Do you think actually, because you talked there about channel, I guess your experience at IBM taught you a lot about the value of that uh, as a route to market. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the time at IBM was, well, at Xerox was important, looking at channel, uh, IBM as well. But probably more so with Marshall, in that you know our go-to-market was 100% channel, and yeah, sense right. that here, here we are, we're 100% channel in our go-to-market, and uh, I think we've got probably a lot more experience at working with channel partners. We're making sure that there's something really meaningful um, for the channel partners, and uh, channel partners can build a business with us. So that's. I think we're much more collaborative now than you know, we've ever been in, in the past. Right. For those that perhaps are not too familiar with the channel model, could you just give an overview of how that works? And then can we talk a bit about how you go about building a channel strategy? Sure. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of how the, uh, how the channel model works, effectively, um, you're giving a discount or a margin to the channel partner for closing business or introducing customers. And the level of that margin depends on the commitment that uh, the channel partner brings or the level of, when I say commitment, that can both be from a sales perspective, training, um, providing technical pre-sales support and post-sales support as well. So that's that's how the sort of the financial model works. It's attractive for the channel partner because it's a recurring revenue stream, and it gives them additional things to talk to their customers about, which in turn makes their customers more sticky. Uh, it's much easier to sell something new to an existing customer than something new to a brand new customer. So. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, so that's why it's attractive uh, uh, to the channel. In terms of channel models, there are some territories where we work through distribution. So that's basically a two-tier model. Your, dis your distributor is more of a, an aggregator who then sells to and supports a reseller channel underneath them. And then, of course, there's a emerging sector which is becoming more and more important, especially in the SMB, and that are uh, those are managed service providers who are delivering you know, a fully managed service to their end-user customers. So taking away all the headache of managing IT infrastructure uh, and software and uh, basically de delivering a fully managed service to their customers. And, and we're seeing a lot of growth in that area. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, so give give us an idea then, Ed, into you, just back to what you were talking about and the, the commercial structure there, uh, discount off of the product, which I guess is the margin that uh, the, the partner, the channel partner makes. Is there a range typically when you're starting out in these relationships as to what that discount might look like? Can you give an indication? Yeah, I it could be anything from 15% to 40%, uh, depending on the commitment uh, and the opportunity. Right. And commitment being, as you touched on earlier, it's what they're going to do, what to help close the sale or to manage yeah, the to, relationship? Uh, I mean, to help close the sale, um, it, it's actually, for us, it's really key that the people we work with actually support those customers because uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's our name on the, um, it's our name on the software. So it's critical that our customers enjoy a really good experience. I mean, one of the things I'm very, very proud of is our net retention rate. We have a net retention rate of 124% which means our customers stay with us and they buy more. And you only get that sort of retention rate if you're delivering value to your customers and supporting them well. Yeah, um, thank you for sharing that. That's a fantastic retention rate. So, Ed, what's the secret sauce for having a really successful channel partnership? It has to be a win-win. Um, too often vendors... Just look at what they're going to get out of it. You've got to make sure that your channel partner uh, is deriving equal value from uh, the relationship. That's the critical element. And uh, you know, it, too often vendors treat the channel as almost a, a throwaway. And it shouldn't be. If right. the channel is going to be important to you, you need to treat the channel as well as you treat your own employees and you treat your customers. Do you think that businesses, particularly early stage businesses, will have to back one strategy? Because that's quite a lot of effort to be able to build that capability internally and to manage what is in effect an external seller. I think that's quite hard for them. It, it's generally very difficult for early stage companies to sell through channel. Um, I think a lot of it depends on uh, your offering. But Typically, um, when you're doing something completely new, you need to be able to lead the channel or lead the sales. And what, what we typically see is people using their own direct sales teams to actually create that market, learn how to sell that product. And you've got to be able to really understand 
all the ins and outs of that sales process before you get a channel involved. So what I would say is getting the channel involved too early can be detrimental to the business. You've got to really understand your proposition right. uh, before you, you expect somebody else to be able to resell that. It's like Chinese whispers. You can imagine you know, the message gets diluted several times before it gets to the end user customer. Yeah, so really understanding, because um, that control about you know, where you fit into the pitch, how well they're stressing, I guess, the important parts of your proposition. I mean, you cede some of that control to your channel partner. Um, do you get a lot of visibility? I mean, how is that even a reality that you can get the sort of visibility you want to where you you fit into their overall proposition, particularly for these managed uh, service providers? I think um, it's critical that we actually understand where we fit into that proposition. And I think yeah. there, are, there are a couple of different of, uh, strategies we use. One of those is we have a, a deal registration program where, you know, where the channel partner brings us an opportunity and flags it with us. A, we protect their margin on it. We give them additional margin. But one of our Right. Um, direct touch team will work with the channel partners uh, to make sure they uh, make sure we all deliver the solution that the customer needs. So, so it's critical that it's a proper partnership, not just a resell. And you've incentivized that partner with additional upside for bringing those types of opportunities to you. Very much so. Yeah. Okay. That's really helpful. This is great insight for anyone considering channel as a strategy. Um, and it highlights a couple of things from, from what I've, I've heard is the complexities of running multiple routes to market in an early stage company and the need that really you've got to have nailed it yourself before you can activate a channel strategy effectively. Although I guess you jumped to channel quite early with Sensonet, but you had a lot of experience of it. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it wasn't a new market for me. I, I understood exactly what the value was to both the channel partners and the customers. So we didn't have to go through that validation process. So um, what does the sales team look like today for Sensonet? So um, we have a, a channel team who uh, exclusively work with the channel and MSPs. And we have a direct touch team who support the channel through um through the sales process. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we have a growing strategic alliances business where we work with some large telcos who um, you know, basically take the Sensonet platform, some some rebrand it as their own or white label it effectively, and some sell it as a Sensonet platform. But that's an increasingly important part of our business and it really extends our reach into markets we couldn't get into otherwise okay how did you organize the sales team um and how has it evolved over time well i mean obviously the sales team has grown over time but uh we have a uh, a very talented sales director who who runs the uh, direct touch team and the alliances team um sit under as uh, a vp of strategic alliances and channels who's also very very experienced at uh, working with partners uh, supporting them we have uh, 
a team of pre-sales and customer support um, heads. When we first met, we talked about organizational structures around a pod formation. I think that that's something that you incorporated within the business early on. Can you t- tell us a little bit about that? Was that is that yeah. structure you just described evolved from that, or is that what you're, you're following today? Well, it, it's interesting, actually. That pod discussion that uh, I can't remember how many years ago it was that we, we, uh, uh, we, we kicked that around. That was a great learning feel, actually, from my perspective. I'd kind of not, I'd not thought about it in that way before. And today we do run a pod structure where we have specific SEs aligned to um, you know, a couple of individuals, and we have a um, an SDR function and part of a marketing function. Right actually dedicated to those pods. So yes, it has worked. And uh, I guess we've evolved it over time, but it's been successful for us. And what about technology and, and just helping that sales journey? Um, we've seen obviously the emergence of AI that is impacting every part of the business process. Have you seen any changes, particularly around the go-to-market and the sales part? Uh, using AI to, to help streamline that or improve the way in which you interact with customers? I, I think um, we use AI from a marketing perspective and uh, we use that very, very effectively. I couldn't really tell you the ins and outs of it because I'm not that well-versed on, on how that operates in a marketing, from a marketing perspective. But um, in terms of our technology stack, uh, brand customer acquisition, we use several tools. Salesforce underpins everything we do. It's our sort of single version right. of the truth. But supporting that, we use things like Zoom Info, uh, Sales Loft, and other tools, uh, all of which help automate that uh, reach out to prospects. Yeah, and they're increasingly having AI elements built into them to streamline that. Um, I spoke to a startup the other day that has claimed to got to about a million in ARR with using AI outbound only. Really small wow. team, and I wonder whether that was uh, something we're going to see. Yeah, we're going to see more of. Um, I guess sending emails is one thing. Whether it's having conversations with people is completely different. But uh, well, I, mean, uh, seeing- I, I get a sense it's changing again. You're seeing a lot of chatbots, obviously, on websites. And those chatbots yeah. are getting pretty sophisticated now. And uh, it's yeah. it, it, arguably some people quite like interacting with a chatbot rather than a human. Which yes. Is- yeah. Well, they're getting better and smarter. I mean, I've heard some really good demos of voice-activated chatbots that you know, you'd be hard-pushed to tell the difference between a human and a and a a bot today and i think that's only going to accelerate so yeah um you've incorporated ai within sensornet is that a fairly recent addition as to, to what's been happening in that area it's we started using machine learning probably about six years ago so uh and we view ai as an evolution from you know that initial machine learning sort of technology that we started implementing then and it's just getting more and more sophisticated. And uh, as your bad actors start using AI to um, exploit and uh, and generate new threats, you know, security companies also have to use 
similar techniques to actually combat that. Yeah. And thank you for, for giving us some insight to uh, the businesses you've built. When you think back on the whole journey, um, if you were sitting now having a beer with an entrepreneur thinking of starting out, as you did with your friend at uh, Salesforce, what advice would you be giving them at this point? I think it's I think it's helped me the most is really sort of finding good mentors and supporters. It, that, that is critical. It's a lonely, lonely journey if you haven't got uh, people you can bounce ideas off and get advice off. So, you know, go and seek um, people who can help you on that journey. And whether they help you financially, whether they help you with motivation or with skills and knowledge, it doesn't matter. Just go find those people. Right. And, and, and you're suggesting more than one, because if you want some help on the product or technology side or commercial side, find people that have those skills that you can learn from. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And I think as I've got more experience, you know, one of the things that I've looked to build with uh, our board are really sort of very knowledgeable people who bring different skills to bear. You know, it's it's very rare that as an entrepreneur you'll have all the skills necessary to build a successful business. But if you surround yourself with people yeah. who can help you, it's going to make that journey, A, much more predictable in terms of success, but easier and more enjoyable for you as well. Great. Is there anything you would do differently for the next business that you might start after Sensenet? <laughs> oh, well... <laughs> We'll have to see, but yeah, (laughs) we'll have to see. But um, what would I do differently? I think I would raise more money um, earlier on because it's a very competitive space out there. Time to market is key, and making sure you've got the financial resource to go faster earlier is very, very important. And I would make sure I do that in the future. Have you taken funding for Sensenet today? Yeah, yeah, we've we've taken funding. Um, we're well supported through uh, a network of um, angel investors who've invested in previous businesses of mine, but also institutional investors yeah. uh, who have been super supportive as well. I think typically, if you look at um, the UK funding landscape, it's very very different to the US, and I think uh, this. This might sound dreadful to say, but if, if I'd had my time again, I'd have gone to the US much, much earlier. And uh, it, yes. it's, it's a very different funding landscape there. Would you have gone seed to, to US? Because I guess the checks are bigger over there generally. Um, or, for instance, if you were thinking we're at a Series A level here in Europe, we're better off going out for late seed. What would be your advice? I think, I think it's quite complex, actually. Um, I think in general, it's easy to get funding in the US, uh, but you, you kind of need to be a US organization. The US is a very big market. It's a big homogenous market, which right. makes it um, easier to probably test your theory. Um, I think that most US VCs or a lot of US VCs are very skilled and experienced about building out a go-to-market, so you're going to get a lot more help there. I'm really hoping, though, that the 
UK and European venture scene you know, picks up the same sort of attitude and skills that a lot of these US companies uh, already have. Yeah, it's certainly maturing with the venture industry here in Europe. Um, uh, I think the challenge remains that a lot of uh, the investors don't have operational experience in quite the same way that US investors do. A lot of them made their money and reinvested back in ecosystems and brought operational knowledge as well as uh, financial backing. Um, It'd be interesting to see if Europe heads that way, but today it's still largely really kind of bankers, accountants, hedge fund managers controlling the kind of flow of money. You don't have that. It'll it'll be very interesting to see. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Ed, where can uh, our listeners find out about you, about Sensonet, um, get in touch if they wanted to? I'm very happy to connect with anybody on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Ed McNair. Um, likewise, Sensenet, which is www.sensenet.com. That's Sensenet, C-E-N-S-O-R-N-E-T. So I, and yeah, I think one thing I'm really happy to do is connect with other budding entrepreneurs and help them if I can uh, on their journey. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure there are many, you'll probably get a lot of emails now from people that uh, would love that level of support. Ed, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Congratulations on what you've achieved to date and, and not least with where Sensonet is, phenomenal growth in challenging conditions. I can't wait to see where you take it next. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking. Cheers. Bye for now. I love that conversation with Ed. What great insights. From the evolution of a door-to-door salesman to CEO, we learned about the nitty-gritty of channel sales and the impact of a well-crafted go-to-market strategy. Ed's journey is truly a masterclass in commercial growth, one that you can draw on for your own ventures. Remember, the right relationships and well-defined go-to-market plan can be game-changers valuable please give it a five star rating and don't forget to subscribe for more deep dives into the commercial side of startups until next time keep building keep innovating and let's keep the conversation going this is phil guest from behind startup line signing off over and out